As occupational therapy practitioners, we know that creating a therapeutic alliance is one of the most powerful vehicles to create change. But we also know that there are many barriers to building transformational relationships with our clients. And honestly, telehealth can feel like one of these barriers. But I'm hoping to convince you today that that just does not have to be the case. To begin with today, we are going to look at a journal article that is a qualitative study exploring parent engagement and therapeutic alliance in teletherapy programs. The author's intent behind this paper was to begin building a conceptual model to inform improved teletherapy practice. And then I am so excited to welcome to the podcast, Adam Griffin. Adam is an OT hailing from Dubai. And I have such a vivid memory of being in just the chaos of the early pandemic and seeing Adam pop up on my social feeds and the YouTube videos he was creating about making teletherapy more fun and engaging. And so it is just a pleasure to be welcoming him today to talk about therapeutic alliance in teletherapy. We have a lot to cover, so let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this topic of telehealth, parent alliance, and OT, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. To gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. It is currently only $89 to be a part of this club, and all you have to do after listening is log in, take a five-question test, and we will generate a certificate for your time today. So bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify strategies to build task alliance in telehealth. And our second is that you will be able to recognize the drivers of relationship alliance in telehealth. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we will bring Adam on to talk about the practical implications for your OT practice. So the article that we are looking at today is called Parent Engagement and Therapeutic Alliance in Allied Health Teletherapy Programs. This article comes from the journal Health and Social Care in the Community, and it was published in 2021. So this article begins with this quick intro into teletherapy and where the research kind of stands behind it. It shares that allied health professionals around the globe are increasingly using teletherapy services, but teletherapy best practices have been under-researched thus far, leaving therapists with insufficient evidence to guide program design and service delivery. But even with the lack of research in this specific area, we do have a lot of research to draw on from just pediatric therapy in general. And one key driver of strong outcomes is having a strong therapeutic alliance. And in pediatrics, this definitely includes optimizing the parent and caregiver involvement. In the intro, they share past research that has shown that caregiver involvement has a significant impact on therapy outcomes in allied health for pediatrics. So before we go any farther, let's pause for a moment and look at this concept of therapeutic alliance. 
The concept of therapeutic alliance applies across the spectrum of allied health disciplines, including psychology, OT, PT, and SLP. And while this concept has evolved over the years, two main definitions are emphasized in this paper. The first definition says that therapeutic alliance is a relationship between the clinician and the client and or others involved in the therapy process that involves trust, collaboration, and agreement about the therapy goals and the tasks required to achieve these goals. In the second definition, they say there are two essential aspects of therapeutic alliance. First is task alliance, which is a collaboration that includes agreement on diagnosis, goals, purposes, and tasks. And then the relationship alliance, which is the development of rapport and trust. So if we zoom in specifically on therapeutic alliance in pediatric teletherapy, there actually have been some studies around this, but they have all focused on the therapist's experience. And while this perspective is important, the provider's voice should not be the only one heard, especially in light of previous research that shows therapists' propensity to misjudge how clients and families view therapeutic alliance in teletherapy which leads us to this paper. The intent of this paper was to clarify the factors that both drive and hinder therapeutic alliance in teletherapy. Their two specific goals were to investigate influences on parents' engagement with a teletherapy program and their therapeutic alliance with a therapist. And second was to make recommendations to improve engagement and alliance during teletherapy. So what were their methods to achieve this? This study used a qualitative design. Interviews were conducted with caregivers whose children had received teletherapy that was either led by OT, PT, SLP, or a psychologist. And a thematic analysis was completed using the constant comparison method. This kind of analysis comes to us from grounded theory research. And if you're interested, you can definitely Google and see what this process looks like. But basically, they do these interviews and they pull out themes that are then used to develop a conceptual model of the participants' experience with teletherapy. So in this process, who were the participants and what did the interview entail? For this study, six parents and caregivers participated in the interviews. Five of the six families participated in teletherapy through the school environment, and the remaining family participated in home-based teletherapy. The interview questions focused on the therapy provided over roughly one semester, where each parent attended an average of 6.2 sessions. The interview consisted of 23 scripted questions, including questions like, were there things about the program that made you feel comfortable? And what things made it easier to work with the therapist? So what were their findings from these interviews? Three themes emerged from the analysis. Theme number one was initial engagement. The parents considered two main factors when deciding whether to engage with an offered teletherapy program. The first factor related to initial engagement was just the practical advantages. The parents shared that these included reduced travel, reduced costs, and reduced inconvenience to the family's schedule. And the second main factor that was important in this initial engagement was the prospect of therapeutic rapport. The parents valued the greater contact with a therapist compared to their alternative options. Teletherapy allowed for access to the nonverbal communication between the key parties, the parents, children, teachers, and therapists. The second theme that emerged from their analysis was collaboration. 
The parents saw evidence that the therapist was committed to a collaborative partnership, and this commitment was demonstrated through first, knowledge transfer from the therapist to parents and other caregivers, and second, inquiry into and incorporation of parents' views and knowledge. Throughout this section, they share quotes related to the parents' perceived collaboration or lack thereof. And one example of a quote was, I thought there would be more questions and maybe I would be given more info at the end of the sessions. So that's an example of how collaboration is important to Therapeutic Alliance, but maybe wasn't being achieved in that specific instance. The third theme that they pulled out was rapport. They say the parents sought evidence that the therapist cared about and or understood how the parent and child felt and might react. In order to confirm or revise their current view of the relationship, they looked for cues from the therapist's actual words, from their facial expressions, body language, and manner of speech. And here's a quote of a parent feeling a deep sense of rapport. The parent said that the therapist had my child's best interests at heart, which came across very well when she said, this program isn't working for your child. We need to tweak it so we can get to the real issues. So those are the three themes that they pulled out. And here is their discussion conclusions and implications. So using the themes above, the authors presented a conceptual model called the parent and caregiver evaluation cycle. This model includes five evaluations that are made by parents and they're grouped into two areas. So the first two relate to collaboration. And in seeking collaboration, parents evaluated the therapist's communication and their partnership within and beyond the session. The next three evaluations relate to rapport. And when parents were seeking rapport, they evaluated the therapist's words, nonverbal communication, and manner of speech. And then ultimately, they take these five evaluations that parents make and have a figure that shows how they relate to relationship alliance and task alliance. I'll definitely link to this figure in the OT Potential Club and encourage you to seek it out in the article. I really like how they break relationship alliance into one section, which is just building rapport and, and that's about your body language and how you're talking. But then the second is task alliance. And that's about getting on the same page about goals and your purposes and the way to achieve that. And that's much more focused on communication and collaboration. The authors state if allied health professionals providing therapy are aware of this model and systematically fulfill these caregiver expectations, they will be able to more efficiently develop a strong therapeutic alliance to improve engagement, therapy results, and stakeholder satisfaction. So that is where the article leaves us, but there is, of course, so much more to talk about and what it looks like to build those strong relationships over therapy and how that's different than in-person therapy. And that's why I'm so thankful to have Adam Griffin here with us today. Adam is the head of occupational therapy at Kamali Clinic in Dubai, as well as a vocal advocate for disability and inclusion in the Middle East. Adam has a wealth of experience and training in supporting young adults with disabilities and their family, and has a special clinical interest in DCD, autism, and child and adolescent mental health. Since arriving in Dubai eight years ago, Adam has been instrumental in establishing therapeutic, educational, and support services in the UAE, as well as providing the highest standard of care for the hundreds of families he has worked with. 
Adam also provides free content for parents and therapists all over the world via his popular Adam the OT YouTube channel. Adam frequently appears in the media in the UAE discussing disability and healthcare-related topics, as well as being a regular speaker on professional panels, international conferences, and workshops. So without further ado, I will patch Adam into our podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. It's great to have you. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. This is so much fun. I am so excited to talk about telehealth. It's something I think about all the time because I think in 10 to 20 years, we'll all be doing some form of telehealth with our practices. And I love that it's paired with parent alliance and parent engagement. That feels like the through line that we talk about all the time on the podcast, no matter what practice setting we're talking about is getting those caregivers and parents involved. So this combination just has me really jazzed and I'm excited to dive in today. I wanted to start, though, with your story and a little background and how you first found OT. Yeah, it's a little bit of an odd story, a little bit of a convoluted long one, but I'll keep it really short. So (laughs) I didn't go into OT out of high school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And he ended up in the world of health and fitness. So I was actually like a personal trainer and Pilates coach in this club in Dublin. I moved just to move away from a little small town. And your journey as an OT, you're going to meet a lot of heroes along the way. And this was my first real hero I met. This little kind of middle-aged Indian lady who moved, she met a man in the, who was in the Irish army posted in India and moved over to Ireland, didn't know anyone, and then started two businesses. She was an absolute rock star. And she had a son who was 13 years old with cerebral palsy. And they got to know about her story and his story and then got to know his OT a little bit, who then later on his career became the head of occupational therapy before I studied. So I learned about this thing about OT. I thought that's very interesting. My then girlfriend who I just started dating, who is now my wife, encouraged hmm. me I should apply to study this. I was really interested in it. But the only school I could go to was the most prestigious one in Ireland called Trinity College. And I thought, I, I'm never going to get in there. I'm <laughs> from little guy from countryside. So I applied, did two interviews as a mature student and thought, well, that was a big waste of time. But I did it sort of to impress my new girlfriend. And then I got accepted and spent two years feeling like a total imposter. And then hmm. started building up this little skill set. And yeah, I've been sort of learning ever since, really. But uh, yeah, that's how I fell into it. It was to impress a girl. <laughs> oh, there's multiple parts of that story I love. I love thinking about the heroes that we meet along the way, both the people that help us get into the profession. And then, yeah, we meet so many heroes as our work as practicing OTs as well. Mm -hmm. So you impressed this girl. She became your wife. You're now an OT. How did you get involved in pediatric teletherapy? Well, I I sort of was catapulted sideways into it, kind of alarmingly, like a lot of therapists when the COVID situation happened and we had the pandemic and things were very much locked down from the beginning here in Dubai. So there was a lot of families who couldn't access any services, really. So my, again, my wife, she's popped up twice already. She encouraged me to like start a YouTube channel for parents just to give practical motor skills-based activities and things they can do at home with everyday activities and everyday items. And that's where I started doing that. And then that became a little popular quite fast. And then then I opened a lot of families who I did work with. Because we didn't really, telehealth wasn't really done very much in Dubai to the extent that the licensing bodies here didn't really know what to do with it. So it mm-hmm. wasn't really any 
guidance around it. So, but then a lot of, I reached out to a lot of my families and sort of that, will we give this a go? And then stepped in to realize, okay, this is something else. A lot of therapists I worked with were not resentful, but sort of when they did teletherapy sessions and the parents were like, so what are we doing here? And the therapist was like, well, I don't want to be here either. This is terrible. And he sort of waded the way through it as best they could rather than kind of saying, oh, this is a very different format than we're used to. But there's a lot you can achieve if you go into it with this kind of very solution focused problem solving approach. And the fact what we're going to talk about that you really need the emotional engagement, not only of the child, but of the caregiver or parent whoever else is there as well. And the necessity for that collaboration was so much more evident in teletherapy. It's always important and it should mm-hmm. always be there in the clinic, but it's not so glaringly obvious if it's not in telehealth. You really don't have anything if you don't have that from the beginning. I just have such a vivid memory of Being in the middle of the pandemic and I was like writing about telehealth at the time because I was getting so many requests from my blog and I would see you pop up on Facebook and I would be like, oh, at least Adam VOT is enjoying teletherapy. I remember seeing your videos and how much fun they were. And that was definitely my first introduction to you. I'm curious when you started offering teletherapy, did that then expand who you could see? Did you see people in other countries then? Did it expand your caseload? It did. Yeah, there was a lot of interest because it was partly because of the YouTube channel, because of those activities, mm-hmm. not only because parents see me and kind of are able to reach out to me, which was lovely. It was this definitely the silver lining for me for the whole last kind of that storm and strife of the last several years. It was connecting with so many families and therapists and all the therapists who told me the videos helped them in telehealth as well or with their activity ideas, which was wonderful. But the fact that parents started to realize, oh, like obviously OTs have a great skill set and clinics are well set up with equipment and are well thought out the activities they can do and suspension equipment and all this wonderful stuff. But therapy doesn't just happen in the clinic. The therapy mm-hmm. and learning and development happens everywhere. The school is your world and everything the child engages with, like their occupations are everything they do on a day-to-day basis. And you can make that really meaningful and developmentally rich as well. And that OT in telehealth can be a real sort of catalyst for that change. And also the other big thing I found is parents started to realize that they could step in with authority into that therapeutic dynamic. They didn't have to be on the outside looking in. And then when they started to do the first few telehealth sessions, then I would find a way to get their involvement. And you kind of see them sitting almost embarrassed like I was mm-hmm. putting them on TV or something. I know some of my parents weren't even used to being on camera on Zoom or anything. So there was a little bit of apprehension. But that when I give them an easy in and an easy collaborative win with the child and you see that that little ember of fun and development kind of catch light, you're like, ah, oh, this is going to be fun. And then it makes the session really enjoyable because you're the therapy is kind of happening in the room with the parent. I'm just sort of steering them in the right direction from my side of the camera. Yeah, I love how teletherapy, it's almost like a repackaging of all the skills we have, and then it just presents slightly different. Or I'm curious to hear your experience, just a little bit more of that transition from in-person to teletherapy. How was it different? What different skills did you need? That's a really good question. I think it's one a lot of therapists kind of wrestled with for quite a few months at the beginning of lockdowns and having almost when they were 
pushed into teletherapy without much like and clients they would have seen clinic before have to be kind of suddenly transitioned into that service delivery kind of pathway. The one for me, like, I don't think I'm really a very exceptional therapist and almost always, but one thing I think I do reasonably well is capturing the emotional engagement of the child, making things fun. I have my whole fun first approach that I'm such a big fan of. And that's something I work really hard on in clinic, but it was something that was definitely a bigger challenge on teletherapy, but it was also far more important was to capture that initial engagement because I'm removed from the space. I'm a tend to be quite a big larger than life character in person. I'm 6'2", got this big <laughs> Irish voice that kind of carries across space mm-hmm. and time. But when I'm only through a little Zoom camera and the child's able to kind of get up and away and leave, I always set myself the goal of I need to capture and keep their attention from the very beginning. It's so much easier if I get them from the start and they're almost hungry for whatever I'm going to do next mm-hmm. rather than say, oh, come on, Johnny, back to back here. We're still working. Yeah. <laughs> if I lose their attention and have to convince them to come back to me, oh, I, I, I'm not a fan of that. I'm economical yeah. with my efforts too. That's working too hard for me. So yeah. <laughs> I need to get their initial engagement from the very beginning and then get the engagement understanding of who the caregiver is as well. They don't have to always be sitting beside them as well, but that they're set up to begin from the very get-go. And that sort of, that attentional and engagement and momentum is what I tend to think about it is I need to start that, boulder rolling really quickly at the beginning of the session and then it sort of feels a lot it kind of is much much smoother whereas if you're struggling with that emotional engagement from the child you need to problem solve that really really quickly on the hoof mm-hmm. at the beginning of the therapy session otherwise it's going to be a lot more stressful for the therapist but a lot less productive for the child too because you're sort of just fighting the battle of keeping them in the seat and a lot of my young guys are my sensory seekers, my guys who have attentional difficulties, you'll lose them in a heartbeat. So you yeah. kind of have to keep the show on the road pretty succinctly. So in terms of emotional engagement for the child, but also being quite clever in the way you're going to present and organize your materials and transition from one activity to the other, where you make things very visual and all happens in screen. But you can even use that. Like there's so many differences between teletherapy and in-person, but they're not all negative. People tend to focus on what they can't do, but then there's lots you can do as well. And you make it quite uh, like the YouTube channel is all about making things easy to follow and very visual and easy to adapt from the child side of the camera. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought up right away the problem of kids leaving the screens. I was just putting myself in the seat of a therapist and I'm like, that would be my biggest fear in teletherapy is if they leave the screen it feels like you lose total control of the situation. I had a kid turn the camera to face the wall. Yeah. So literally just <laughs> yeah. turn the computer around. It's like, okay, touche, yes. young man. Yeah. <laughs> Your move, Adam. It's like, all right. And there's not yeah. much you've done as an undergraduate that really prepares you for that. It's like, yeah. yeah, I can't reach through the camera. There's not much I can do. But then some of my guys are very, they're <laughs> clever. I had one kid uh, a few weeks ago who sat, he had recorded the background of his own room. And then he was working with me. I didn't realize it was a video behind him, not the real background. And then he had himself walk into the room and like <gasps> look into the camera and then walk out again <laughs> as he's working with me. He's like, and then I, I realized like, oh, you weren't listening to anything I said for the last five minutes. You were just waiting to show me this trick. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, I can appreciate that. That's pretty good. It's almost like there's a more equal power dynamic because the kid potentially has so much control over what can happen, which I guess is a good thing that there's an equal power dynamic, but 
that there's all the things that yes. could go wrong too. Oh, that, you know, I never <laughs> even thought of it like that way, but you're totally right. And what it means is you've got to convince that young person of the merit of what you're selling. They got to pick yeah. up what you're putting down right away. Always they can just shut you off. And like, what, what yep. are you going to do about it, Mr. Man, from your side of the camera? And so there's not much you can do. So yeah, making it kind of slap, as my kids say, you got to do that straight away. Yeah, it puts a lot more pressure on the therapist to get that buy-in from the client. Mm. And turning to our article, which to me was a lot about getting that buy-in from that parent, and I loved how it made us think from the parent's lens. Like, what are they looking at and evaluating as they're watching and observing this? And I think the first thing I wanted to ask about the article is just did you agree with the buy-in of the basic premise that the better the parent engagement, the better the outcomes? Have you seen that and experienced that? Did that ring true to you? Yeah, 100%. In fact, I was only thinking about this article. Well, since I read it, since you shared it with me, and thank you for doing so, because it actually, every so often you read an article, it really makes you think about the way you practice as well. And I was only mm -hmm. doing a consultation with a new family today and thinking, well, because sometimes I get pressure from to get right into the work straight away and like not have all the info gathering and all the rapport building and all that. What's kind of sometimes seen as the preamble to the work of therapy with the child, but that understanding the parent's perspective and building that trust and rapport, understanding their story. So I take quite a long time to do that. In every new consult, I'll have all my usual background, medical history, box checking stuff, but I'll always tell the parent, like, give me 10 minutes in your own words. Tell me what brought you here in the first place. And hearing it from their perspective, it's it's absolutely everything. And even the acknowledgement, something we said in the article was the parent's perspective and also acknowledging their insight and their value that they can bring to the table, that they're not, they're not a passive recipient of your care and skill set, that they're you might have your degrees and whatnot, but they have a doctorate in their child. Mm -hmm. so you'll never know the child as well as they do. And you really need to value that and find a way that they can step into the therapy process and that they can discover, wow, this person really values what I have to say. And there is a role for me here in directing and becoming a part of this therapy process, whether it's kind of carrying on activities you're doing in therapies or where if it's guiding and giving insight for the therapist on their own work with the child. But no, I think that's, the note I said here was, do you agree with the premise? I was like, a thousand times yes. Yeah. Because I think it's, and I also think it's one of the ones that's missed a lot. And it's a long answer, I know. But in Dubai, it presents an interesting challenge because some parents are slightly hesitant of that. They're so accustomed to their traditional medical model where they're that clinical person sitting mm -hmm. with their white coat on and everything else and degrees in the wall and they're sitting in the reception area and they leave the child then pick them up again. So to bring them in the therapy process and give them a real stake in the game, they can be a little bit apprehensive. So you have to be very good at always making the parent feel like they're in safe hands. They've reached safe harbor. I'm there to help them. And this is a collaboration. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think we feel those same challenges of the dynamic here where we are also so used to the medical model of mm. the therapist is the expert and there is lots of times like a drop off at therapy and that's the time for the parent to yeah. relax. And it's a change for both us as therapists, but also the perception of what therapy is. And I always think too, it for a therapist, when we're seen as the expert and it's just us and the child, it's almost easier or it could in some ways be seen as easier. Whereas if you factor in the parent a lot more, that 
introduces a lot of unknowns. Like, what are their goals going to be? What if they're different than my goals? What if they want to do something totally different? And it becomes more complex, but mm. also more effective. So, yeah, I think OTs sometimes. I know some amazing therapists, but they mightn't be the best at communicating the rationale of why they're doing something to parents, especially mm -hmm. parents who I have had a parent recently who was very focused in something they could see, which was toe walking. So they say, stop my child walking on their toes. And that whole conversation about why they might be doing it in the first place and what it might be suggestive otherwise, and a load of other things that teachers are bringing up. But this was the parents' view. This was the main factor. Mm -hmm. Other kids didn't do this. So then it's, you can't just throw your hands in the air and say, oh, what are you going to do? No, this parent is coming from their truth, their position. So then I have to communicate my own clinical reasoning kind of clearly and then see it from their perspective so we can all kind of move forward kind of together. Yeah, and that work is just so important to get on the same page. So logistically, thinking about getting the buy-in from parents, you talked about this a little bit, but do you meet with them separately before teletherapy starts with the child? Just logistically, what does that buy-in look like? How do you build that relationship? The first step I do to get the buy-in is actually managing the expectations of the parents. And I tell them a little bit what the first conversation with me would be like. So actually, before you actually have the clinical face-to-face, -face, I'll usually give them a quick, almost a quick little phone call just to say hi. So they hear my voice and I explain mm -hmm. a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. I actually leave it up to the parent. So sometimes when I do consultations, the parent will want the child to be involved in the conversation. And that's great. Some of my parents I work with want to be able to speak kind of candidly and feel like they be a little bit more guarded in front of the child. Depends on the age of the kid as well. So I'll leave it up to the, the parent. And even that little first part or letting them choose whatever they think is best that's kind of symbolic of what's going to happen a lot where i'll give them a lot of choice and i'll give them a lot of opportunity to decide okay would you like to do this or that and i'll guide you with my recommendations to guide their thinking but a lot of the, those decision making processes i'll leave up to them then when we do the consultation it's kind of a lot of what was touched on in the article about listen to what their goals are what their hopes and expectations broadly some of them are not quite sure how to verbalize it, but I want to know, I don't need it to be a clinical like IEP type goal in 80% of occasions or any of this. I just need broadly, what's their emotional position? What are they hoping to get out? Some of them have no idea what OT is or why they're there in the first place. There's mm -hmm. someone, they got my name from another parent or whatever it is, but it's just recognizing where they are right now, where they'd like to be. And then I get, I have the fun part of explaining then how I can help them get to that point. And then when they get in the actual therapy, therapy session or session in the clinic, it's just, again, I like my little fun first approach. So I'll find a way to make it an enjoyable experience from the very get-go that usually get some laughs from them and the child. At the same mm -hmm. time, you see that resistance barriers just come crumbling down and then we're off to the races. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like your approach works across caregivers or do you find yourself varying a lot in responding to how the caregiver is engaging initially? A little bit. So it's interesting here in Dubai, actually. I, I'd say it's maybe universal, but definitely Dubai is much more so than Ireland from my own background is because Dubai is so culturally diverse. And some, some of my parents will come in and straight away jump into the conversation about this is what they expect and this is mm. one it's quite emotional and very florid and engaged and wonderful and marvelous and then so my other families like the ones today is i'll ask 
questions or leave that space open. And it's very small, like they're filling in a form, but yeah. verbally, <laughs> it's really, really limited answers. So then for all of it, I am just a catalyst for the parent. I'm there to kind of nurture that. Whether it's, it doesn't need to be very long and emotional or include wild gesticulations, but as long as I get an understanding of their honest position, where they hope they're going, then I'll just adapt my approach based on the psychology of the individual across the table for me. As long as they feel reassured that I understand where they're coming from, and I feel Mm -hmm. confident that I know what I'm going to do next. When I get to the agreement on tasks, then I can explain, okay, we're on the same page. The last thing I do in consultations is just reiterate the priorities for intervention, make sure these are important, they're valued, meaningful to the parent, and then do the child ideally as well. And then we'll get into, okay, this is how we're going to do that. And this is why when I do some of these silly tasks can look like play activities, this is why you do this thing, and this is what it's going to help. Mm. To get that agreement on goals, both with the caregiver and the child, you mentioned this a little bit, but I want to drill down just a little bit more. What does that process look like for you? It's just hard to get three different parties, you, the parents, and the child on that same page about goals. Yeah, what what does that look like? It just seems like there's a lot of potential challenges there. And what have you experienced? Yeah, it's oddly for me, it's kind of simple to drill that. I just keep asking why. So why Hmm. is this important? So tell me. And it's interesting if I have a parent and child in the same room. And uh, OTs, we had a lot of referrals for handwriting. And this is something the young person typically doesn't value very highly, but maybe the parent. (laughs) So I'll say if I pick that as a very, very common goal. Okay, needs teachers can't read their work or they're affecting their grades because they can't communicate all the amazing things they their knowledge on a subject. It's also a lot of the time it's affecting their like motivation to engage in the whole learning dynamic in the first place. So parent is highly motivated. Young person is not motivated at all mm-hmm. because they're you, a lot of the time, by the time they get to me, they realize, oh, this is just the way I always write. I've tried to do better, but that's just got to be like this. Take me or leave me. That's who I am. Yeah. <laughs> so then it's more, I'll get them to buy. And not that you must buckle down and work harder, mister. It's more that, well, let me show you ways to make your life easier. And I'll show you mm-hmm. some techniques and you tell me if it works for you. So it's given a little bit of responsibility back into that dynamic. But I almost universally will find a way to get everyone on the same page, especially if it kind of like a scientific approach and say, well, let me show you something that's worked for a lot of like guys. And then we'll do mm. this for the next week. And then you tell me if I don't know a thing, if you, your mom's wasting her money or whatever it <laughs> yeah. is. And then they're like, oh, okay, I will tell you, mister. And then yeah. they get that sort of giving them a little bit of the power. It's not like, I'm not a teacher, kid. I'm something else that you haven't met before. And then they, you see them kind of align with that. And when you, the parents realize, okay, we're, focusing on the outcomes and then seeing the young person actually check and buy in with their own, giving them that little control and responsibility, then that's usually a productive thing for me. Yeah, I love thinking about how that responsibility is shared across parties. And I can just see how telehealth helps facilitate that. Again, going back to, like we said, where there's a more equal power dynamic where Mm -hmm. the child is can choose not to be there. They can choose to walk off the screen. And that just, I think naturally, if they are engaged, there's more responsibility there. You mentioned the focus. Did you call it focus on fun or your fun fun first first. approach? Fun first. Yeah, yeah. How does that impact your, the agreement on tasks and what you're doing and what does that look like for you? 
Yeah. So for the task, again, so I have the phone first is what I mentioned. I say that a lot every day. Yeah. But I have my Adam's three rules. So thing, mm. whatever the task is, especially in teletherapy, my goodness, this is really was my guiding light on coming up with activities was something has to be fun, clear and accessible. So fun always first. because I need the young person to be interested in what this thing is in the first place. If they're just because honestly, an OT, I think it's very easy to stay busy in sessions. It's very easy to find something to do to pass the time. But I really am adamant that I need this young person to want to do their best in this thing I'm doing. And that's like, well, that's the magic little secret sauce to make this whole thing kind of pop. And then so we have the fun, then clear. So they have to know what success looks like. They have to kind of, so they're motivated to get there and they know where there is. Then accessible. So it's graded at a level that's not too challenging, but not too boring and easy as well. If I can find those little equalizer balance levels of tune it in to a frequency where I get fun, clear and accessible, then I know it's going to be a success. If not, if something's not successful, it's usually a failure in one of those three areas on my part. And then I can I can fiddle around with my levels and change one of these three and I'll get it back on the frequency I want it to be on. How do you come up with this checklist? I love this framework that you have. And I think it's so great for therapists to have like little checklists for ourselves and three is the perfect number and... That just, you said those three things. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course that would work. That's a great checklist yeah, for us. I, I've used it for years. I honestly, I really must like do something with that because I, I get, a, a, some therapists seem to find it helpful because the one thing I really like it for is you're never out of ideas. You're never at a crisis point. She's like, okay, how can I make this more clear what he has to do? Or give visual examples or hand over hand or whatever you're going to do or make the first step really obvious. So maybe you wouldn't even worry about steps two, three, four, five. We're just going to do that first little step of this thing. And then how to make that more fun or engaging or silly or I use sound effects or use different materials and multi-sensory stuff and all of that. But it, it was more that, okay, I'm... I'm never going to lose track. I'm never going to lose control of a therapy session. It's never going to descend into chaos ever because <laughs> I'll find a way to bring it back on task where the, the young person is engaged with one of those three things. Hmm. Can you give me an example of one of those activities and what oh, that yeah, looks yeah, like? And, I maybe what well, oh, looks I, like I, if I it's going off the rails oh, and you bring it back. I could actually get one here, but <laughs> yeah. um, when I do, do you want me to get one and show you like on camera? Yeah. Or just talk you through it. Oh, okay. Oh, or Easy just talk, okay. talk me through it. Talk me through it. Let's okay. do that. I'll talk yeah. you through it. Yeah. Well, I can almost do a visual with it. Yeah. doesn't take much imagination, okay? Yeah. It's one called Save. It's a, one of my favorite teletherapy ones called Save the Spoons. I like ones to start with the treasure hunt. So I'll say, okay, kid, you got two minutes to do this. I want you to run. Don't run in the kitchen. No, that's a bad. Don't say that. Don't yeah. say run in the kitchen. <laughs> no, go to the kitchen. And I want you to give me five big spoons, like soup spoons, dessert spoons, ice cream spoons. Give me five big spoons and give me two forks, please, and a big mug. And they're like, I know what all three of those things are. I'll be yeah. back in two seconds. <laughs> and off they go and they come back, big mug, spoons and forks. I was like, okay, I want you to hold your spoons up, drop them on the table, clang, 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 spoons mm. bust around the table, fun, fun, fun. So the kid's like, okay, I'm making a mess and doing silly things with spoons. I have no idea where I'm going with this. Okay, okay, hold me your fork, show me your fork. Now, I want you to try and use that fork. You can only use a fork to pick up the spoons and put them in the mug. And I'll hmm. show them what it is. So the visual of, okay, spoon has to be in the mug. I use this for older kids with starting off handwriting and motor planning issues and metacognition as well. And because there's a hack, if you actually use the fork, this is the spoon, and use the fork 
along the spoon like that and lift it underneath the head. You can lift it very easily, but most guys don't think of that right away, but they will get it inside three Eventually. minutes and they think they've hacked the game. They're like, ha ha, yeah. <laughs> But what they'll do at the beginning is try and use two spoons, two forks that sort of lift and balance the spoon and steer it in and crash. And that game, because it's very clear, spoons end up on mug, you've won the game. It's clear, it's accessible. They can sort of maneuver it. They can use everything. They can get there, even with two forks, very simply, it's very easy to lift the spoon and get it close to the mug, but it will fall off and you probably won't get it in the first few times. Or you might be able to do it coming up with your own unique web of kids who've done a whole bunch of ways with that. But then you'll eventually get the idea of it or I can steer them towards it a little bit as well. And that's usually you'll get maybe even you'll get 10 or 15 minutes of the kid trying to work this out, very focused and attentive. And that kind of thing, because there's it's very clear on camera and I can set it up, the visual is nice. There's lots of sound effects and drama and novelty. <laughs> yes. Novelty and silliness are two things I use all the time or using everyday items in an unusual way. And then also, this is a fun one. I do this with a lot of my activities. It's something when I finish, parents will tell me, the kid will run into the next room and show the brothers and sisters let's see if you can do this, but won't tell them the trick. So they have a secret now. The other kid doesn't know that they can do. And I've got a bunch of like magic trick ones with rubber bands and stuff as well. Similar idea. So it's kind of like, ah, very silly, very fun, fun, clear, accessible. It's a winner. Oh, I can just see my boys loving (laughs) doing those activities. Do you feel like as the kids are doing it, they're able to connect the fun back to their goal area? Are they thinking in that way? Because I'm also like, this Um, just sounds really fun. I can see how they would get swept up in just the fun part of it. Yeah, but at the same, they can. And I will make that evident at some points. But at the same time, you don't want to be the fun place and go like, no, no, don't be laughing, Jimmy. This is your business. (laughs) Like, no, it's like, you know, the way you're doing this, it's actually really good for, and they'll talk about other areas like their handwriting or like the way they can manipulate this thing. And so that particular kid had a very big issue with anything bilateral integration or anything like so buttoning was very very he had given up on that and she's like okay and the other thing for this kid and for some kids with that activity is task directed persistence so it's guaranteed you're going to fail a whole bunch of times at the beginning so some of them will go ah i can't do this and then i kind of coach them along a little bit and how to get them back on task but most of the time then they'll They'll get into it and realize, okay, if I if I just stay with it and I learn from the motor modulation bit, I think, okay, why? And I'll just say, okay, why did that fall down? Why is this not working? What do you need to do differently? And just almost give me their little frontal lobes mm-hmm. externally sourced over to my side of the camera. And then I'll I'll do the work of their metacognitive frontal lobes. And then they'll able to problem solve it themselves with just that little bit of a yeah. gentle encouragement. Oh, I just love this. And I love think about the kids going through the trial and error part. And I hear all the time on the podcast where therapists get to become like the voice in people's heads where we're the one who's like encouraging them through trial and error. And that's almost the thing that feels like could stay with them the longest Mm. and be the most impactful to have someone have that voice in their head outside of therapy too to be like, how could I keep problem solving? Like, Exactly, because yeah. it's one of the most broadly generalizable things. Honestly, if 
one of the best things I think that OTE or therapy in general um, can do is just this idea of building tenacity and grit and that little bit of think, okay, not just mindlessly grinding away, but thinking, okay, I fail, but then seeing failure is okay. That what are what did I learn from that? And then developing that whole everyone talks about growth mindset. Schools are full of mm-hmm. posters of yeah. growth mindset. <laughs> but OTE can really help the young person feel it in their bones. Yeah. Believe it in their to their shoelaces. They're full to the brim of growth mindset and thinking as they walk through higher grade levels and even out into graduation and beyond, they're almost ironclad for whatever happens around them. It's just bring it on. We're mm-hmm. ready for it. Yeah. Oh, I was already a fan of teletherapy before this conversation, but this just makes me be like, I want everyone to have tele. I want to go to teletherapy. This sounds so fun. And just the skills are so transferable. It's so interesting how there's like this more controlled setting and these more rules, but it's also really generalizable. Yeah, it's just a really interesting medium and I'm I'm really excited about it. And you found so many ways to be creative in it. Mm. I definitely wanted to ask about the paper too, about the feedback loop with parents, what that looks like as far as how they give feedback throughout the course of therapy, whether it's them being on the camera as it's happening or between sessions. What does that look like for you that just seems so important to have that open conversation and feedback loop going? Yeah, and I think the for that part of thing, it's the word I like is like a constant dialogue, like dialogue and like conversation. I think sometimes therapy, parents can kind of, you, you check in with the parent and Therapists can almost pat themselves on the back and say, oh, the parents are all involved and you you update them what you've done. But it's almost like you're telling them about a TV show you've seen yesterday that the parent wasn't watching. They're not a part of it. They're not part of the cast. No, they're mm-hmm. there in the show. They're going to be almost the star of the show in my case. It, it's a constant dialogue. So anything that's happening at home, I'm always interested in what happens in the child's real world. So at home, in the community, with their friends and in the classroom, that's why I'll have the parent feedback loop it's open all the time and i'll have things like i'll ask always a lot about sleeping habits eating habits any of these things that are real world markers and i'm looking for change and then if it's things like adls for example or buttoning or dressing skills or anything like that the parent's going to be my go-to person to just look for outcomes there and look for change and not only change in the skill set more interesting for me is what's the change in the child's attitude through their own abilities and their confidence in themselves as a physical being mm. and being able to navigate these things. Do they, are they embracing this sort of independence in a new way? Cause I'm going to, I'll give a little inception and those sorts of ideas. And then you can see, okay, habits that are, cause families are so habituated, like bedtime tomorrow is probably going to look like bedtime today unless something changes. So the OT can be that little extra catalyst just to invite a, so like a stone in the pond and it has little ripples and I'm going to want to know, but, and even having an interest in what the parents' daily lived experience is and how that has changed, that's going to inform my own practice and my own treatment. So the parents, so they know their their insight helps me. It's not just a one-way street. And then that's a good way to kind of invite that conversation and dialogue. And just be, <laughs> this is an odd way to say it, but for the parent to just be a nice person for them to talk to, to be understanding, mm-hmm. for the parent to want to share that information with you and feel like you're kind of like a kindred spirit or you're someone who's kind of there that they can, they can inform or they can talk to. Yeah, it feels like such an important part of the therapy process. And I can see in teletherapy how the therapist might even 
seem more accessible. Like if you're used to connecting with someone online already, then it's easier to like drop them a note versus if you're used to going to the clinic, then it feels like you just talk to the therapist at the clinic. And then that's like a very limited time and environment. Yeah, exactly. But teletherapy opens up more modes of communication. Yeah, I think so. I've seen some ones where like parents have told me going to speak to the therapist felt like they were being brought to the principal's office. Yeah, and yeah. Like, oh, I, I don't know what to say. And they ha- they're like trying to think of things to say to the therapist. No, it's, it's one of the reasons I think email is the worst way to communicate with parents. So I hate, I don't like email in general. It's yeah. a form of communication, but this why I love conversations and I love this sort of thing. So I think it's ideal, face-to-face ideally, but teletherapy, there's it's an easy way to do it as well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask too for people who might just be starting teletherapy or who are doing it and they feel like they're not good at it. How do they improve this skill set? I know they, one way is they can watch you do it on your YouTube videos, but how did you learn? How did you get good at at it? I watch you and I'm like, you're so, I feel like you were uniquely made to be a pediatric teletherapist. How did you get good? (laughs) How did you grow that skill set? Well, I definitely. It wasn't even an intentional thing, really. It was just that necessity demanded it. But for therapists, I think they can make teletherapy can be made so much harder than it needs to be if you're like you're an occupational therapist. The occupationals you choose, those are the means by which you affect change with a young person. That's surgeon has a scalpel. We have our occupations. We have Mm -hmm. our activities and games and whatever else you have. So being mindful about what occupations you're choosing, how you're setting those up, how you're communicating those with the young person and then getting their engagement with those straight away. That's put a lot of thought and effort into that. Then it makes the actual dialogue and interaction with the child on screen so much easier because you've you've set this job up. That's why I would I'd be the world's worst behavioral therapist. I see my colleagues in ABA, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not in that <laughs> world because I, I really like kids who I, I can hear them not, sometimes always want to go into that other room and they run into OT. In fact, they jump on the screen, which is kids who are excited to get on a Zoom mm. or on a teletherapy call is not usual as anyone who homeschooled over uh, yeah. <laughs> COVID will tell you. But that thing where if your activities are well thought out and if you get that balance of fun, clear and accessible, and the other part is working in your communication skills with the young person and with the, the parent and working in your presentation skills. So you become a bit like a magician's assistant where it's all all in camera and all very visual if you're doing handwork mm. or if you're doing any motor skills by motor skills thing. Make it so it's easy to follow along with. And then you're you're never going to lose their engagement once you have it at the beginning. And then it becomes quite quite fluid and quite fun. And the sessions actually whip past really quickly. But if you don't do that, yeah. it'll seem like a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's just a element of practice and seeing yourself on camera. I know I've had to. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different skill set. thing as well. The other thing as well, I find this was one that a lot of friends of mine who are very experienced therapists, and sometimes I feel like people who are more experienced struggled more as they mm. find like the things they've always relied upon, yeah. they couldn't go to anymore. The kind of comfort of the discomfort that naturally comes along with teletherapy at the beginning and the contentment with relinquishing 
that element of power and thinking, okay, if the, the kid can choose to walk away, there's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't mm-hmm. make you a bad therapist. Yep. Or you might have a kid one day who's not here for OT. He is not <laughs> down for what you're picking up that day. And that that's fine. And realizing that's, don't judge yourself based on that. Be like, okay, I'll get him next time. Or I think like the child, what, where, what did I miss there? Is there anything I can learn from that? And then use that to kind of, don't become too disheartened with teletherapy if you have one or two bad sessions. Like, okay, mm-hmm. what can I learn? What can I do differently? What can I set up next time to make that more engaging? Yeah. And you've probably had bad sessions in person, but it's not as obvious because yeah. they didn't turn the screen towards the wall. <laughs> so. Yes. And you, like, you don't have a Southpaw acrobat swing. You can just... Yeah, like ah, you have that. That that's usually the go-to. Everyone loves the swing, so yeah, rock and roll there, man. Yeah. <laughs> Get into lycra and easy peasy. Hard to do lycra. Lycra is a tough sell across teletherapy. Yeah. <laughs> My final big question I wanted to ask before our rapid fire is just what you see as the future of teletherapy and OT. Do you agree with me? Do you think it will become more universal? I just think it's such an exciting practice area. Yeah, I 100% do. I think people need to lean into it a little bit more even and say mm-hmm. like to, I would like to see teletherapy built into undergraduate OT education yep. just as an awareness of this is a mode of practice that is available to you because it, like if you think of the benefits of it for the clinician working from home and being able to kind of manage and expanding your, the amount of families who can access you for parents the convenience but the young person they're doing it something where they're comfortable for example i have a few young people i work with who are teens who are maybe working on social anxiety or might be working on lots of different things but even the idea of coming to the clinic is uh, there's a quite a lot of cognitive dissonance and discomfort around that so i can see them where they're most comfortable and it's a very natural place for that therapeutic dynamic to take place so there's so much benefits to it. I think it will become bigger and bigger. It kind of exploded all of a sudden over COVID. But I think now the same way a lot of people got to understand that they could do their jobs working from home. We're mm-hmm. doing the traditional office work. Now they realize, okay, there's a lot of therapeutic benefit that can come from teletherapy as well. And this is the thing, it doesn't take anything away from the great work that therapists can do in clinic. It's just a different skill set and it brings a whole new world of developmental and clinical possibilities for families that may have had trouble getting access in clinics. I, I know a friend of mine who's a teletherapist in Australia and like one of her family's nearest clinic is hundreds of miles away because it's such a broad, open place. So that's why it, I think it's it's definitely here to stay. And I think therapists should embrace that. Yeah, I can't believe it. We're already at the end of our time today. I wanted to be sure to ask you our rapid fire questions, though, if you're open for it. Yeah, absolutely. Finish this sentence for me. Occupational therapy is. There's so many things I could say there. Yeah. Um, for me, so it, it's it's awesome. It's amazing. It does all these things. But no, for me, when I think about that question, the first thing, actually, we mentioned it before, kind of speaks to the article we discussed, but occupational therapy is a collaboration. So whatever, if it's the the client or patient or parent or child or whoever it is, it's all it's therapy that's done with the person. It's not to the person. They're not a passive recipient of your care. They have to be involved. It's like we talk a lot about this term client-centered. It really truly has to be. And they're in the core of the therapy process. They're right through the middle of it like a sticker rock. And that's one of the many reasons I love it. 
because it's collaborative. Mm, that's so beautifully said. What's a moment you've had as an occupational therapist that you'll never forget? Oh, I have loads of these. There's a few that I really like. There's one area of practice I love that's, I know these are rapid fire. I'm not yeah. a rapid fire guy. <laughs> oh, but, I love it. Yeah. Okay, real quickly. So this has happened a few times, but I'll have a young person. Uh, one of my favorite area of practice is middle childhood motor coordination or DCD in particular. And this young guy picked last for football, hated sports, really had no confidence in himself carried himself visibly downcast all the time and I got him to explore different ways to be physical and it got him into some a passion of mine which is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and mm. this is the occupation he explored totally had no was really nervous about it introduced him to it a little bit in the clinic and then he started becoming really into it and got super passionate about it and it became actually quite a big part of how this person seen themselves they were mm. a jiu-jitsu player and they do, could do this thing and he described walking after the school holidays in the class like he felt like batman and he was oh. untouchable and, he, and his head held high and could do this amazing thing the other kids couldn't and even went in to compete as he uh, got a letter from his dad years later that this was a changing element of who this boy became because of this occupation he found. And I was like, huzzah, yeah. that's fantastic. <laughs> but finding those boys who have no self-belief in themselves because of their motor skills and ability, and then finding I can be capable, I can be confident, I can be awesome because of the occupations and how they affect the way I feel about myself. Oh, that's so just emotional to hear about. That's an incredible oh, transformation. I, I agree. Kid. That's the... yeah some of the most amazing work we can be involved in as OTs. Mm. What's something you've read recently that's inspired you as an OT? I went through a bit of a rabbit hole. So it's not even OT related. It's actually, I'm a big fan of stoic philosophy. There's Ooh. a guy who's a popular writer about that called Ryan Holiday, yep. who does a lot of writing. But my fa one of my favorite books I reread a lot is by a guy called Marcus Aurelius, who's a Roman emperor. It's called Meditations. And Ryan Holiday, is a great, if anyone's interested in it, there's a book called The Obstacle is the Way. And I feel that's baked. It's so in alignment with OT mm -hmm. values about how these things that your tendency is to avoid, but it's the actual troubles and the difficulty and the the things you have to overcome that make you who you are and they are such a pivotal thing so the obstacle that with blocks the way becomes the way so i'm a big fan of that and so i i read marcus aurelius mm. that's mind-blowing for me because you're over in dubai and i'm here in the united states in nebraska and we totally have that ryan holiday book sitting on our nightstands ah, too so it's really good yeah oh, i love it that book i might have gifted world. that one more than most other books, and especially Obstacles Away. He's a few new popular ones about Stoic philosophy as well, but yeah, I like his stuff. Awesome. And we've talked about so many things during this time today. What's the one thing you want to leave us with? Just if any, especially if any OTs are listening, that this idea of what we got from the article about building collaborations and about working with families to bring them in. So they're not external, they're not outside looking into the therapy process, but that sharing of responsibility and it's mutual, it benefits everyone. So working on your communication skills or working your rapport building skills, it's not generally something that's touched on in undergraduate OT education, but think of it from the family's perspective. If they come to see you, they feel like they've reached safe harbor. You're safe hands and you're someone they can connect with and collaborate with and engage with in that way, then it'll make your job so much more rewarding and make your clinical experiences universally positive also. Mm. 
Adam, I just feel like this was the most important thing we could have talked about today. I know we're talking about a specific practice area, but what you're saying is so universal to all OTs. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and all that hard-earned knowledge that you've gained. Well, thank you so much. This was a real, real joy to do. So I had such a blast doing this. I love this area of practice and what we talked about, as you say, I think it's central to what we do. It's so in line with the values and core principles of OT that uh, I think it was lovely. I had a great time. Oh, thank you, Adam. Wow, I love this conversation because we all know how important therapeutic alliance is, but that does not mean it is easy to do. And it was so fun to talk to Adam, who you can just tell that this is one of the skills that he has mastered, especially over teletherapy. And I appreciated the background of this article that again divided therapeutic alliance into relationship alliance and task alliance. I know for myself historically, I am probably better at building relational rapport and had not been as good about communicating about our goals and why we're doing the things that we do in therapy. We will continue to discuss this topic and this podcast in the OT Potential Club. That's where you can head to chime in in our forums. And like I said at the beginning, that is also where you can go to take a test and earn a certificate for your time today. We also have a public facing blog post about teletherapy where I'll include lots of resources and do an update to that. So if you're not a member, you can definitely check out that free resource. And as always, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice and stay evidence-based. Take care and we'll talk with you next time.